Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Nehra. So we are on the sidelines of the Arts Literature Festival. And uh, yesterday I had the honor of uh, moderating a panel uh, between two people whom I respect a lot, uh, Dr. Neeraj Rai and Dr. Conrad Els. And then uh, post the panel discussion, Dr. Rai and uh, Dr. Els and I were sitting together and we were wondering that maybe we could not discuss a lot of things on the panel because of the paucity of time. So I requested them that why don't we do a podcast? We are here. Uh, we rarely get these occasions to sit together. And both of them were kind enough to agree. So, so Dr. Rai, Dr. Els, thank you very much. And a very warm welcome. So, Dr. Rai, we'll start here. Yesterday, we did not touch on the... So, I'm not going to touch on things we discussed in Earth already. But I'm now going to uh, discuss things that we could not touch upon. Now, recently, as you know, because you are in the field of population genetics, so I want to start there. There was a very famous paper. There were three papers that were written by Lazaridis et al. And I want to specifically focus on those papers because they have made a lot of noise. As a, noise in a positive way, not in a negative way, uh, before somebody accuses me of that. They've made a lot of uh, you know, discussions around uh, the new findings in relation to what could be now uh, the you know probable proto-Indo-European homeland. Now, on the basis of some genetic findings recently done by Lazaridis et al. And they are now famously called the Southern Art Papers. Now they are moving towards a more Iranian or Armenian homeland from whatever I have understood of, uh, of my readings of those papers. So how, what are your opinions on the findings based on that? <clears throat> Thank you, Kushalji. Um, West Asia could be a probable home of uh, Indo-European languages. But that migrations before present the Aspas would massively migrate away. So, what about Anatolia? There is no migration signatures. So, there is a problem. Our language expansion and genetic uh, migrations. Dono ko ek correlate karna, ek fascinating. Lagta hai, but, this is not language is fast diffusion. Our genetic Findings, एक sample के basis पे या दो sample के basis पे जो है बहुत मुश्किल होता है, ठीक है? तो उस paper का सबसे बार drawback है कि जो Anatolia में जो migrations हैं, उसको लोग proof नहीं कर पा रहे, justify नहीं कर पा रहे, ठीक है? जो Anatolian language का जो source क्या है, और जो उनका जो affiliation है, proto Indo-European languages या Indo-European languages से, वो affiliations वो भी उन्होंने establish नहीं कर पा रहे, तो ये drawback है। fascinating thing came that so in the beginning the consensus view was that South Russia is the proto-Indo-European homeland. Now that consensus is officially broken. But even if we take the Southern Art papers at face value, Dr. Els, even amongst the people who who were peddling, I, I don't want to use Aryan invasion because let us be as charitable to them yeah. as, as possible. We call it Aryan migration because Honestly, that they don't call it invasion anymore. They call it a migration. That's a separate thing that after calling it a migration, they make it sound like an invasion, but that's that's for some other day. But even if we talk about AMT, 
now the 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 south russian consensus uh, would you say has been officially broken after the southern act papers well on a large scale uh, so the um, the linguists themselves admit that this was only a secondary homeland so that they settled there from the european viewpoint th that was indeed the homeland in the sense that that's where they came from and they stormed into europe and it was a very dramatic invasion here the, the term is certainly not uh slanted or so this really describes what happened uh, including in a few places no less than genocide a complete replacement of uh, uh archaeological finds like uh, new pottery new burials and so on so it was a very dramatic uh, event of a type that you don't find in india and that's so we do have an invasion in europe we do have a very much an Aryan invasion into Europe, uh, but um, the the homeland now has become controversial. But there are still people who defend it, like David Anthony, yeah, the one who wrote about uh, the horse, the wheel, the language, in, in the statues and so on. He um, <laughs> insists that there was no crossing of a genetic type across the Caucasus Mountains from south to north. Now, you see, this is a debate among geneticists that I really uh, am not going to interfere with. So, you know, I accept this, this new thesis that there was a move from northern Iran, Armenia, uh, to the north of the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea. But, you know, what language did they speak? Uh, this is always a question. So if there was an influx into India in 1700 BC, as David Reich says, you see, I think it was not the Indo-European speakers, or maybe they spoke an Indo-European language like Iranian, Scythian, but uh, they were certainly not the bringers of Sanskrit, because Sanskrit was already in India. Uh, so you see that the relation between genes and language is always difficult. On the one hand, you do need a physical migration to get a language to migrate. Mm -hmm. In those days, it doesn't really happen on a large scale, but you can imagine that the whole population takes an internet course of Sanskrit or some other language and then adopts that as its mother tongue, at least for the next generation. But in those days, obviously, this was uh, purely imaginary. So if a language migrates, it's because people have migrated. However, that's, that's only part of the story because then all the time people undergo these uh, processes of language change. So, um, you know, in, in, in Australia, they speak English because they came from England. Mm -hmm. and, and that was already the official language by the time newer arrivals came and, and adopted English. But in Jamaica, they also speak English. And not because they came from England. They came from Africa. And yet, their presence does not prove that Africa spoke English. Fair enough. Nor does it prove that they came from England. You see, it's only like this because they adopted English. They changed language. And there are sociological explanations, the history of slavery and all that. And uh, so... In all kinds of circumstances, these uh, these processes take place. You see, often, often voluntarily, like uh, 
but the great majority of languages has died not because they were killed, but because they committed suicide. Because at one point in a specific social situation, parents decided, well, it is better for our children if they learn the new dominant language. The elite hypothesis. Yes. And so that's, that's uh, you know, a thing that often happens. Like, for instance, how Brussels became predominantly French-speaking rather than Dutch-speaking. That's a, a very good example of this. Now, um, in, in the case of uh, the, the Pontic uh, Steppe thesis, you see, even there, you see, it's not the controversial Aryan invasion story. No, no, you see, even in, in this area, uh, any language change also remains possible. So we don't know what the people spoke who com came from, from northern Iran. And um, so I, I am very interested in, in what is being found by professionals about population movements. But again, you see the, the, the linguistic question remains open. So then, Dr. Rai, what genetics ka kya role hai? Because here we always have this question that linguistics ka argar, ar, uh, ka argument is given. तो लोग कहते हैं कि आर्कियोलॉजी का है आर्कियोलॉजी का दिया जाता है तो जेनेटिक्स का है तो कहां भी हम जेनेटिक्स को कैसे यूज करें फिर इस पूरे इस पूरे चक्कर में अगर मैं आपसे ये कहूं अगर कोई एक पॉपुलेशन किसी एक लैंग्वेज को अडॉप्ट करती है और मूव करती है लैंग्वेज हमेशा मूव करता है पॉपुलेशन माइग्रेशन के अगेंस्ट जैसा कि सर ने बोला कि जमाइकन दे स्पीक इंग्लिश बट उनका जो जेनेटिक एफिलिएशन है वो साउथ अफ्रीकन से मिलेगा तो इस केस में जो है कि लैंग्वेज को अडॉप्ट करना एसिमुलेट करना एंड देन उसको लैंग्वेज को ट्रांसफॉर्म करना और फिर होता है कि सिलेक्शन ऑफ लैंग्वेजेस वो दो या तीन जनरेशन में भी खत्म हो सकती है बट जेनेटिक्स जो है आपको ट्रेस बैक कर सकती है 100 200 300 जस्ट एक हाइपोथेसिस है अब इस लेवल तक की जो हाइपोथेसिस है वो करेक्ट लोग मान रहे हैं नेक्स्ट डेटा आएगा तो हाइपोथेसिस भी चेंज होगी बट जो जेनेटिक माइग्रेशन की जो हाइपोथेसिस होती है वो नहीं चेंज होती है अगर हमारे साउथ एशियंस में स्टेप एंसिस्ट्री मिलती है दैट इज फैक्ट वो चेंज नहीं होने वाली है स्टेप एंसिस्ट्री है यहां पे हम बट वो एंसिस्ट्री कब इंटीग्रेट हुई है साउथ एशियंस में दैट क्वेश्चन इज डिबेटेबल वो 5th 6th Migration event वो जो है काफी डीपली रूटेड है बहुत पहले आई है तो ये ये बहुत एक कंटीन्यूअस इवेंट था जो कि 500 600 इयर्स तक चला है वो और उससे जो है एनसिस्टी जो है वो अपीयर होती है मोस्टली इंडियंस में तो मुझे यू नो दिस दिस ऑलवेज बैफल्स मी सो इवन आफ्टर द सदर्न एक्ट पेपर्स हैव कम एंड द कर्गन हाइपोथेसिस बिकॉज़ इट इज कॉल्ड द मोस्ट टेक्निकल वर्ड फॉर इट इज द कर्गन हाइपोथेसिस राइट यस सो even after the final 
death knell to the Kurgan hypothesis. But the movement into India still is a consensus. Yes. Uh, so I don't understand. Let's say this is the hypothetical Iranian, Armenian, uh, Anatolian area. And you have South Russia somewhere over here and mm-hmm. India somewhere over here. So I mean, how the hell can they say that, okay, yeah, this could have been the main homeland. But then they went over there and all those people in the languages still came to India from South Russia. Mm-hmm. Why, why could they not say, maybe, I'm, I'm not saying with certainty, mm-hmm. but maybe, yeah, one group might have gone there, one group might have gone there, one group might have gone mm-hmm. here. Uh, because uh, is there a rule, Dr. Else, that languages only follow one direction like this or they could go anywhere? No, of course not. There is no such rule. Uh, however, I, I imagine, again, not being a geneticist, but I imagine that they go by the evidence that they find. So apparently, they note uh, genetically identifiable population movement from Iran to Russia earlier than the population movement, which David Reich uh, notes uh, from Russia into India. And so therefrom, you get the scenario that they moved from the real homeland Iran to a secondary homeland Russia, and from there they moved to India. So uh, that from there they moved to Europe, that is entirely plausible. Whereas from there they move to India, the evidence is very weak. So apparently there is some genetic evidence, but that only concerns a period, which I think on a number of other grounds is just too late for the fabled uh, Aryan immigration. Uh, so you, you just have to follow the evidence, what the evidence says. Now, what these... Uh, well, let's say fanatical immigrationists overlook is all kinds of evidence that points the other way. And I mean, it's accumulated. Like the Russian scholar Alexander Semenenko uh, has provided a great many data of the northwestward expansion of the Harappan civilization, which we should not only consider the, the high period, the urban period, 2600 to 1900 BC, but already thousands of years before, this expansion is already going on. So they, they went into Oman in the Arab Peninsula, they went to, um, to Mesopotamia, where of course they couldn't take it over because this was a powerful place in itself. But they also went to Central Asia, which was more or less an open space. So they very much influenced the place already already for a long time. And so they were at home there. This was their backyard. And therefore, it was only logical that if a crisis broke out in India, whether a political crisis or uh, an ecological crisis, that, you know, this is where logically many of the foundries would. And it may concern only a very small percentage of the Harappan population, but because it was such a demographic heavyweight, even a percentage-wise small number of people would suddenly make all the difference in Central Asia, which itself was a very thinly populated area. So you have a very realistic scenario that's supported by archaeology, as shown in detail by uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Semenenko. There is additionally a lot of uh, genetic evidence now uh, for a grand 
gradual emigration. And so there you have a real gradual emigration. I mean, there is a constant trickling from Harappa into the surrounding areas. Uh, that which they now uh, have to say about the Aryan invasion, no, it was an immigration, it was slowly a trickling in, you don't notice, no archaeological evidence, but still it must have happened. Well, you see, that kind of scenario applies in the other direction. The Harappans constantly went everywhere, often as traders, you know, or as settlers, because there was open space enough. They didn't need to conquer. And there is no evidence that, that, that conquering is what they did. So, you know, that scenario that finally the immigrationists have arrived at for their scenario is very realistic. It's, it's very much indicated in the case of a scenario of migration from India. But uh, Dr. and Dr. Rai, both of you, if you don't mind me, because I... All right, maybe South Russia is not the... Mm -hmm. Proto-Indo-European homeland. Maybe Proto-Indo-European languages did not come to India mm -hmm. from South Russia. But then how does it, and this is the question for both of you, but I still don't understand how does it make the case for the Indian homeland. I, I'm just being very mm -hmm. honest over here mm -hmm. and very open-minded. Like if, if, And I don't get it sometimes. Okay, I'm not saying you, you make it. You guys are scholars. You guys are experts in your own field. You don't make those emotional comments. But at the end of the day, and I get it because even Dr. Els had touched upon it. Unfortunately, because of the politics in this country, this subject should be an academic subject. Mm -hmm. How languages moved, how people moved, how cultures evolved. It should be an academic subject. But it is so fraught with emotions in this country is because political parties mm -hmm. have managed. And I don't want to talk about the political parties because because they are immaterial. This, this has to be. Yeah. Like, how does it prove that India was the proto-Indo-European homeland? Like, I, I still don't understand it. And, and I, I am not averse to the idea of an Indian mm -hmm. homeland, but I just don't understand how. Okay, I get it. The Rigveda is native to India because anybody who reads the Rigveda, and I'm someone who has read the Rigveda, not once, multiple times, but I get that it, 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 it is very clearly a book of people of this land. Mm. They, they sound very Indian yeah. in their uh, in their behavioral patterns, in the way they say. But it still doesn't prove Proto-Indo-European is Indian, right? Just a mere reading of the Rig Veda and everything. So, what? Uh, first you, Dr. I, aap kya yeah. kya hai isme, and then Dr. Else you. I, and, I, and I have to push back over here because that's my job. Yeah, genetically, it's a very difficult to prove. But I want to say that South Asian ancestry and uh, Iranian ancestry is if you go back to 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, the ancestry was the same. So mm -hmm. we all were sharing our gene pools and genetic uh, uh, materials. So up to Iran, you won't find any genetic differences about 12,000 years ago. Okay. So if this say is information say that proto Indo European homeland ko jaane mein kuch bhi help hota hai, maybe Professor just can. Mm -hmm. Well, the situation in the 90s was that many of us strongly doubted the Aryan immigration scenario. In fact, the, the start of the second life of the uh, out of India scenario, which had the first life around 1800, when it was the dominant hypothesis in Europe. But so that came back in India with uh, the Katpasa book by Kedi Setna, where he argues that Archaeological evidence suggests that the Vedas 
did not know Carpasa yet, uh, cotton, whereas the Harappan cities do. So the Vedas must be earlier. That's what he argued. And, um, you know, it was, I don't know if it was true, but it was at, the, at any rate seriously argued. So as a hypothesis, at least it had to be taken seriously. Then the next thing that happened, 84, is a paper by the American archaeologist Jim Sheffer, where he argues that there is no evidence, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how much money was thrown at it, to find this Aryan invasion, we haven't found it. And it, among Indian archaeologists, that already was the impression, but out of all for the prestige of Western scholarship, that wasn't being said aloud. So that, you know, made it possible for them to go public with it without being ridiculed. And even Bibi Lal, who had in his younger days supported the Aryan invasion scenario, came back and said, well, you see, what I did was simply fit my findings into the reigning paradigm of an Aryan immigration, but actually it doesn't prove that paradigm. And now I think that Aryan and Harappan, or Vedic and Harappan are two sides of the same coin. So he is one of the converts from Aryan immigration to out of India. There he are many in the one. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, he, me essentially also. Uh, Nicholas Kazanas, the, the Sanskrit professor from Athens, same story. So, um, to the extent that this is an argument in itself, you know, it is to be noted that all the conversions are in one direction. Uh, now, anyway, what I was saying is that in the 90s, you see, we started developing a number of indirect indications for an out of India scenario. But actually, we weren't sure yet. Um, we had strong reasons to believe that the Aryan immigration could not have taken place. However, we had no real alternative scenario. And that's when um, Shrikantalageri came to play. His first book in 1993 is still uh, a bit uncertain. It uh, bases itself on the testimony of the Puranas, which is a very garbled literature. In some respects, you know, the king lists, it's essentially reliable. In other respects, it is not. Uh, but in the year 2000, he came with his book, The Rigveda and Analysis. And there he gives an entire scenario based on literary testimony. So you see what pottery types say or what gene types say and so on. You know, to make sense of that is, is a very indirect uh, game. Here he had human uh, testimony, people who themselves describe events that with our present knowledge we can recognize as these are the middle and the later phase of the emigration from the homeland. But uh, Dr. Els, again, I I am pretty, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. very much aware of Srikant Talagi's work. I, I have nothing but respect for Srikant sir and probably this podcast has promoted the the work of Srikanth Alagiri the most uh, mm -hmm. out of all, all discussions. But I completely accept Srikanth Alagiri's internal chronology of the mm -hmm. Rigveda. I actually do agree. Yeah. Uh, even the, on the basis of the Anukramanis, how he has done the internal chronology, even in the old books where he mm -hmm. says the sixth is the oldest one. Yep. Then we come to the third one. 
uh, and and we go along that, that route. But how does it still prove that Proto-Indo-European mm-hmm. it has originated in India? Why why can't it be the case? Let's say uh, that Proto-Indo-European the Proto-Indo-European speakers mm-hmm. could have been somewhere in the Iran, Armenia, and Mongolian region, and they may there, there was a primary immigration of those people trickling down over here. These people settled over here. They formulated the Rigveda pretty much over here. And then there was a second migration out of India mm-hmm. into Iran. And these are the same people who then end up writing the Gathas or, or one of the tribes who goes out, one of the Rigvedic tribes who goes out of India and they write the Gathas and that is why you have the old book, new book. Like why is that not a plausible scenario if I was to ask? But you see that the scenario... <laughs> Or that that evolution from one scenario to the other has already happened once before. Between about 1830 and 1860, we see the exit of the first out of India. And so the the primary reason is that uh, Sanskrit was gradually understood to be a later form of uh, Indo-European. It was not the ancestral language. There are a number of differences identifiable between what the uh, ancestral language must have looked like and Sanskrit as we know it. So you see, the first hunch of many people was that Sanskrit was the origin. And later they saw, well, Sanskrit was not the mother of the other branches, it was an elder sister. And so from there, is that, that made it easy to deduce, even though it's not entirely logical, that uh, the linguistic distance between Proto-Indo-European and Sanskrit must translate into a geographical distance between the homeland and India. Now, that's really not necessary because languages evolve while staying in the same place. So Proto-Indo-European could have been spoken in India and then develop into Sanskrit and other branches. Uh, anyway, you see, that, that's what happened. Uh, then a few other uh, considerations came into play, like linguistic paleontology. So they looked at the vocabulary of Proto-Indo-European, like you see, for example, all the parts of a wagon, you know, the wheel and so on, they are present in the Proto-Indo-European vocabulary which is why they are still present in each of the branches, which is different from other languages that don't have words for wheel or car or so. Uh, so this much we know, you see, in technology, yeah, even the old uh, Proto-Indo-European 6,000 or so years ago, they had this particular wagon technology, which later also develops into war chariot technology, but that's only about 2,000 BC, and that's only visible in the last book of the Rigveda. And now, uh, more to the point for the, uh, the homeland, uh, because at the time there was no serious archaeology. So these diggings in Sintashta in Russia or Sanawi near Delhi, uh, that all that didn't exist yet. Uh, but so purely linguistically, what they could deduce was the presence of animals. And so they saw the wolf was there, the bear was there. These, you know, suggest uh, Siberia or Scandinavia or so, certainly not India. Now here again, this is a a hasty, uh, careless conclusion because actually these animals do exist in India. 
Mm-hmm. So India should not be excluded as a, as a candidate on that. But so at that time, that's what happened. Then another factor uh, is uh, the rising uh, race thoughts. You see, I mean, in India, you often hear said, yeah, it was all concocted by racism and so on. Well, racism as a sort of spontaneous feeling exists all over the world, and it may have played a role in history. But racism as a you know quasi-scientific doctrine, that's typical for the second half of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. So when that came up, the uh, first appearing uh, Veda translations mm-hmm. also followed that paradigm. And so a number of passages, particularly in wars where enemies are described, were interpreted in that sense. So you get the Battle of the Ten Kings where the enemies are described as the black aborigines. And so now in India's political discourse, you still hear all the time, yeah, the Dasas and Dasus were the aborigines. Now, Dasa and Dasu are words known from Iranian. And all the names of the kings and the tribes and so on that are on the enemy side are Iranian. And very recognizable. It's indeed a mystery why no translators saw that. And so they kept on bringing in the black aboriginals and so on. Whereas these were the Iranians. You could even maintain the immigration scenario while recognizing that they were Iranians. Why? Well, in the colonial situation that obtained at the very same time, you also see wars between colonial powers. In India, you had a war between the British and the French, which the French lost. You earlier had wars between the Dutch and the Portuguese and so on. So after they more or less subdued the natives, then the different colonial powers start fighting among each other. So you could say, okay, uh, the, the, the Vedic people came in into India first, then followed by the Iranians, and then they fought one another, just a simple war for power, and the Iranians happened to lose, and so they moved westwards. And that's how Afghanistan, Iran became Iranian. That's what you could have said, but no. Oh, you see, at the time, everybody agreed, oh, no, these are the black aborigines. And so, if the Vedas themselves describe yeah, we are white invaders, we subdue the black aboriginals, then it becomes futile to deny the Aryan invasion. So with the state of knowledge at that time, the Aryan invasion, and at that time it was very much called an invasion, not an invasion, uh, seemed to be the logical, uh, the logical way out. And so that's together with linguistic paleontology, is the nail in the coffin of the first out of India theory. Fair enough. But again, Dr. Rai, I wanted to ask you that sometimes you don't think that, and please don't get me wrong, Dr. Rai, okay. but we're reducing AIT versus OIT binary. Mein reduce kar rahe? Yes, so uh, out of India theory is well established. No, but if we understand Iranian ancestry, which you understand the most, I don't understand it, and maybe Dr. Els doesn't understand it, but you understand it the most. So Iranian ancestry, if we look at Neolithic times or Calculithic times, how do we study Iranian ancestry? Uh, Iranian ancestry could be a post-Pakistan plan. Okay. Uh, Iranian ancestry could be a post-Pakistan plan. Okay. Uh, 
इसको हम ये जानने की कोशिश कर रहे हैं ट्वेल्व थाउजेंड ईयर अगो जो कि ईरानियन हंटर गैदर से हमारी जो एनसिस्टी मैच कर रही है दो पॉपुलेशन और घोष पॉपुलेशन हाँ जी वो कहाँ पे एग्जिस्ट कर रहे थे दैट यू डोंट नो वो गंगा पेन हो सकता है वो हड़प्पन से भी हो सकती है वो ईरान में भी हो सकता है वो कहीं भी हो सकता है जिनसे आज के मॉडर्न डे ईरानियन सारे जो डिसेंडेंट्स हैं हाँ जी एंड जो हड़प्पन में जो डिसेंडेंट्स हैं उनकी जो एनसिस्टी कॉमन है ट्वेल्व थाउजेंड ईयर अगो वो पॉपुलेशन का होमलैंड इंडिया हो सकता है आई कैन मेक केस ऑफ इट और उसे कोई आगे नहीं कर सकता है तो तो फिर इफ दैट इज द केस डॉक्टर राय तो फिर फिर ओआईटी में भी इतना कॉन्फिडेंस नहीं होना चाहिए ना लोगों को नहीं ओआईटी में क्यों नहीं होना चाहिए ओआईटी के तो काफी सारे केसेस हमारे पास ना जेनेटिक डेटा है हमारे पास अगर आप आउट ऑफ इंडिया थ्योरी देखेंगे नॉट ओनली टुवर्ड्स नॉर्थ वेस्ट आपको तो दिखेगा जो है टुवर्ड्स ऑस्ट्रेलिया भी 7000 इयर्स अगो आपको यहां से माइग्रेशन हो रहे थे टुवर्ड्स ऑस्ट्रेलिया ऑस्ट्रेलिया में जो एवोरिजिनल्स ऑस्ट्रेलियंस हैं उनके अंदर जो इंडियन एनसिस्टी है उनकी जो डेट की गई है डेट साइंटिफिक डेट्स सेवन थाउजेंड ईयर्स अगो तो अगर आप अब टू ऑस्ट्रेलिया पहुंच सकते हैं तो इधर आप वेस्टर्न यूरोशिया क्यों नहीं जा सकते हैं आप हमारे पास तो जेनेटिक एविडेंसेस है टू थाउजेंड ईयर्स अगो जो आज के रोमा पॉपुलेशन है जो यूरोपियन वो माइग्रेट हमारे पास हड़पन टाइम पीरियड के सैंपल्स का जेनेटिक एविडेंसेज है जो अब टू तुर्कमिस्तान और अब टू जो है जो नॉर्दर्न ईरान वहां पर मिल रहे हैं उसको अगर कोई साहित्यकार या कोई इतिहासकार अगर लिखेगा देन वो पॉपुलर होगा कोर्स करिकुलम में आएगा तब हमें पढ़ाया जाएगा अच्छा एक मुझे और आपसे प्रश्न पूछना था कल आपने अर्थफेस्ट में भी ये डाइवर्सिटी ऑफ आर वन ए जो की आपने बात की थी तो क्या होता है कि वो वर्ड यूज कर दिया जाता है मगर किसी को समझ भी पड़ता है तो वो होता क्या वो इंटरनेट में गिफ्ट सुन के तो बहुत अच्छा लगा समझ में कुछ नहीं आया तो ये व्हेन वी से डाइवर्सिटी इसका अर्थ क्या होता है एंड व्हाई डज द डाइवर्सिटी व्हाई वेयर इट इज फाउंड मैटर सो मच देखिए जहां पे भी किसी भी लैंग्वेज का जो होमलैंड होगा तो जहां पे होमलैंड होगा वहां पर डायवर्सिटी ज्यादा होगी ठीक है जहां पर वो माइग्रेशन हुआ होगा वहां पर उन लैंग्वेज के बीच में डायवर्सिटी कम होगी वैसे जेनेटिक्स में होता है जहां पे अगर कोई एक म्यूटेशन होता है हमारे डीएनए में ठीक है बहुत सालों पहले मे बी फाइव हंड्रेड जनरेशन पहले तो वो होगा हमारा बेसल एक म्यूटेशन होगा ओके उसके भी ब्रांचेस होंगे हाँ जी उन ब्रांचेस में भी म्यूटेशन होंगे क्योंकि टाइम ज्यादा है हाँ जी एक जनरेशन में कुछ म्यूटेशन होते हैं टेन जनरेशन में कुछ और म्यूटेशन होंगे हाँ जी और उसमें से एक ब्रांच अगर मूव करके जा रही है कहीं तो वो तो सिर्फ एक, एक सेट ऑफ म्यूटेशन लेके जा रही है ओके बट जो उसके जो क्लस्टर ऑफ़ कंपेयर टू अदर पार्ट ऑफ वेस्टर्न यूनिवर्सिया तो आर्वन इवन को जब यूज किया गया आर्यन इन्वेजन से कोरलेट किया गया कि अगर आर्यन आए होंगे तो आर्वन एवन एनसिस्टी इंडिया में आई होगी फिर उसको हम लैंग्वेज से कोरलेट किया कि एंड देन उसके साथ हमारे इंडो यूरोपियन लैंग्वेज आया होंगे क्योंकि जो वो डेट आ रही है दैट डेट वो फाइव थाउजेंड टू फोर थाउजेंड ईयर जो आ रहा है तो ये सब कुछ फिट बैठ रहा है ना ऑलरेडी जो हाइपोथिस दी गई है 
एक रिलेटिव जो सेट किया गया है उसमें सब कुछ फिट बैठ रहा है आर वन ए वन फाइव थाउजेंड भी उसी टाइम पे आई होगी आरियंस भी उसी टाइम पे आए होंगे पर जब आर की जब ओरिजिन की हम बात करते हैं हम देख रहे हैं कि इंडिया में हमें दिख रही है इंडिपेंडेंट ओरिजिन ऑफ आर वन एवन बट मेजोरिटी जो आर वन एवन कुछ ब्रांचेस हैं वो हमें साउथ एशिया में इसका होमलैंड है मगर फिर इफ यू डोंट माइंड मी आस्किंग अ फॉलोअर जस्ट फॉर क्लैरिटी मगर आप जब बोलते हैं कि हमें हर कास्ट और हर ट्राइब में ये मिलता है मगर उसमें परसेंटेज कम होती है ना नहीं कुछ में ज्यादा होती है कुछ में कम होती है कोई डिफरेंसेस नहीं है डीपली रूटेड जब कास्ट सिस्टम फॉर्मेशन के पहले ही जब आपके आर वन एवन डाइवर्स हो गया तो आपको जो उसकी फ्रिक्वेंसी सारे कास्ट में बराबरी मिलेगी ब्राह्मण में ज्यादा मिली एक ब्राह्मण के पॉपुलेशन में फिर हमने दस ब्राह्मण के सेट ऑफ पॉपुलेशन सैंपल लिए फिर वो नॉर्मलाइज हो गया तो वो यूनिफॉर्म डाइवर्सिटी आर वन एवन की कुछ कुछ ग्रुप्स हैं साउथ इंडिया में जैसे पलियार है मुदलियार है उड़ियान है उसमें कम मिल रहा है दे में भी आइसोलेटेड फिर होता है ना कि फाउंडर इफेक्ट होता है एक पॉपुलेशन अगर आर को लेकर के तीन आर वन एवन के लिए लेकर के मूव की गई थी सौ लोग मान लीजिए तो वो है कि एक ब्रांच जो ज्यादा सर्वाइव की वहां पे उनके बच्चे ज्यादा हुए हो सेकेंड जो ब्रांच है वो डायलूट हो गई हो डायलूट होने का मतलब है कि वो अपने रेस को आगे नहीं बढ़ा पाए ओके दस जनरेशन में आप इनसे कंपेयर करोगे दूसरे वाले ब्रांच को तो उनका जो सर्वाइवल इंडेक्स है वो उतना ज्यादा नहीं रहा हो ओके एक ब्रांच ज्यादा एडॉप्ट हुई और उनकी जो फ्रिक्वेंसी बढ़ गई तो तो इस ए, ऐसे केस में फिर बाहर जो पॉपुलेशन जेनेटिसिस्ट है मैं नाम नहीं लेना चाहता क्योंकि आपके कलीग्स हैं इसके लिए मैं नाम नहीं ले रहा और कोई रीजन नहीं है आप उनके साथ काम भी करते हैं और तो आप रेगुलरली काम करते हैं मुझे पता है इसके लिए मैं नाम नहीं ले रहा मगर फिर वो ये वो वहां पे अगर एक सम, मैं उनकी गलती नहीं कह रहा हूँ कि इंडिया एक तो अपना जेनेटिक डेटा शेयर नहीं करता That is a huge problem, Doctor Ashwin. We hmm. don't share our genetic data with the world. Uh-huh. India नहीं करता. For whatever reasons, I don't want to get into the uh-huh. reasons. Of, yeah, we don't share our genetic data. So whatever population geneticists outside India make their case is based on NRIs. Uh-huh. So yeah, they only make their uh-huh. case. अभी तो करते हैं. देखिए एक और problem है कि India का जो data है genetic information, India को आप नहीं समझ पाएंगे. Until unless you have like ten million or twenty million data sets. तब तक समझना काफी मुश्किल होता है क्यों इतनी डाइवर्सिटी है हमारे जो नॉर्थ के जो कुछ पॉपुलेशन ग्रुप्स हैं या जो मेरा जो जो मेरा जो कास्ट है जो मेरा जो ग्रुप है मैंने देखा है कि इसमें टेन लेयर ऑफ मिक्सिंग हुई है तो आप एक एक लेयर को आप निकालोगे लाइक कैबेज आप एक को निकालोगे तो आप इन्फॉर्मेशन लूज कर रहे हो ना कि अंदर क्या है वो जानने के लिए आपने दो लेयरिंग को निकाला तीन को निकाला चार को निकाला फिर आपको जेनेटिक इन्फॉर्मेशन बहुत लिमिटेड अच्छा इतना हाईली एडमिक्स पॉपुलेशन है इसमें कि आपको जो है ट्रेस बैक द एंसेस्ट्रल पॉपुलेशन वहां तक पहुंचने में आपको बहुत सारा जेनेटिक इंफॉर्मेशन को लूज करना पड़ेगा तब आप वहां तक पहुंचोगे और जो तीन फॉरेन स्कॉलर्स हैं उसी जो कोर है उस इंफॉर्मेशन को जानने के लिए ये सारी की सारी जो लेयरिंग है ना उसको डीलिंग करते हैं फिर उसके बाद जो लिमिटेड डेटा होता है उसके बेसिस पे पूरे इंडिया को रिकॉन्सेप्ट करना सडेली टफ जॉब एक गांव के जो पांच ग्रुप्स होते हैं उनकी जो डायवर्सिटी होती है वो यूरोपियन डायवर्सिटी से ज्यादा होती है मगर सो इफ दैट इज द केस देन लाइक आई डोंट अंडरस्टैंड व्हाई इज देन द आर्यन माइग्रेशन केस आर्यन माइग्रेशन केस हमारा जेनेटिक्स में कभी डिस्कस नहीं किया गया जो जेनेटिक्स स्कॉलर्स हैं ऑल ओवर द वर्ल्ड उसमें आर्यन माइग्रेशन या आर्यन इनवेजन थ्योरी को कभी भी सपोर्ट किसी ने नहीं किया क्योंकि ये थ्योरी जो होती है मोस्टली हिस्टोरियंस के बीच में रहती है 
हमारे जो कोर्स कुरिकुलम है एनसीआरटी की या जो भी हिस्ट्री के जो स्कॉलर्स होते हैं उनके बीच में ज्यादा डिबेटेबल होती है जेनेटिक्स ने इसको कब का ही डिस्प्रूव कर दिया है मतलब आज के पांच छह साल पहले ही डिस्प्रूव हो चुका है बहुत सारे ऐसे पेपर्स आए माइट्रोकॉन्डोलियन के वाई क्रोमोजोम है जे टू ऑप्लो ग्रुप है एल वन ए जो लिनियज है ये सब यूरोप में मिलता है इंडिया मिलता है so uh, so could then uh, to use the quintessential indian terminology could this culture be could could this indo european culture if i was to say mm-hmm. because there are indo european cultural traits mm-hmm. right yeah. we can see commonalities in between india iran and even the, the eurasian steps right mm-hmm. you are cultural uh, you see cultural mm-hmm. similarities so could this be a khichdi culture then what khichdi culture hai it could be a khichdi right the quintessential indian dish doctor else that every indian likes mm-hmm. is a khichdi where we basically mix too many uh, things aur jo caste group formation hui jo india mein jo ki hame different different caste groups dikhte hain wo bahut late hui hai 8th 9th 10th century ad ka case hai wo 1500 saal basically hue hain so ek group hai endogamy jiska hai ek group hai ek group dusre group ke sath assimilate hui move ki unko caste batane jo ki nahi hai jis jis jahan assimilate ho raha hai unki caste ko use kiya जैसे मैं किसी कास्ट का हूँ या किसी ग्रुप का हूँ मैं छत्रियो के आ, के पास गया मैं बोला छत्री हूँ हो गया कास्ट एसिमुलेशन सो so, इसका कारण है एपिडेमिक्स एपिडेमिक्स बहुत ही मैक्स पीक पे था उस टाइम पे दूसरा है कि एग्रीकल्चर क्राइसिस क्लाइमेट काफी वेरिएबल है इंडिया में हाँ जी तो एपिडेमिक एंड आपका जो क्लाइमेटिक क्राइसिस उसकी वजह से काफी ज्यादा इंटरनल माइग्रेशन हुए और उसके बाद जो है कास्ट एसिमुलेशन हुआ जो कास्ट सिस्टम भी काफी लेकर है मतलब फिर डॉक्टर अगेन फॉलो अप ये ये जो बोलते हैं कि नहीं ए एस आई ग्रुप अलग होता है ए एन आई ग्रुप अलग होता है कि नहीं नॉर्थ इंडियन नॉर्थन इंडियंस और सदर्न इंडियंस में डिस्टिंक्टिव डिफरेंसेस हैं मेजर एंसेस्ट्री जो मेजर एंड लिमिटेड एंसेस्ट्री के बेसिस पे क्या हम नॉर्थ इंडियन और साउथ इंडियन को अलग कर सकते हैं जस्ट टू अंडरस्टैंड द एंसेस्ट्री तो वैसे ही हुआ ना कि पिज्जा में से टॉपिंग निकाला चीज निकाला सब कुछ निकाला सिर्फ बेस बचा है उसकी इन्फॉर्मेशन को यूज करके हम बस देखना चाह रहे थे कि जो ए में जो वेस्ट यूरोशियन जो एनसिस्ट्री है वो कब आई जो कि साउथ इंडियंस में नहीं है उसके बेसिस पे हमने क्रोनोलॉजी को स्टेब्लिश करने की कोशिश की और वो जो क्रोनोलॉजी है वो पांच साल पहले से लेकर के और आती है पच्चीस साल पहले तक है दो हजार जस्ट टू फाइंड आउट एनसेंट जो एनसेस्टर नॉर्थ इंडियन एनसिस्ट्री एंशियंट साउथ इंडियन एनसिस्ट्री उनको जानने के लिए हमने बहुत सारा डेटा को रिमूव किया और बहुत सारे सिलेक्टेड पॉपुलेशन को लिया सारे पॉपुलेशन फिर नहीं बैठती है तो वो हमें चला पता कि अराउंड फोर थाउजेंड ईयर बिफोर प्रेजेंट हो सकता है कि नॉर्थ इंडियन और साउथ इंडियन में मेजर मिक्सिंग हुई जेनेटिक मिक्सिंग तो स्मॉल पॉपुलेशन यूज टू मूव बट जो मेजर मिक्सिंग हुई दैट हैपन अबाउट फोर थाउजेंड ईयर्स अगो बिटवीन नॉर्थ इंडियन एंड साउथ इंडियन मिक्सिंग क्यों नहीं हुई We had geographical barrier and linguistic barrier. वो linguistic barrier and geographical barrier की वजह से जो है major जो movements नहीं हो पाए. Then doctor else, if if I was to ask you, 
I know you don't make that case, but if I also ask you, because I'm going through my notes at the same time, I was. Uh, so let's say, you know, in the conference, something that you had mentioned. So are there proposed timelines for migrations, let's say, from the Iranian homeland? And are they consistent then with archaeological records too? I know you don't make the case, but if you were to make the case. Well, I mean, in history, we know of a number of immigrations. And sometimes the archaeological or genetic record clearly matches these stories. Like, um, I read an article about the genetics of different caste groups, including the Jats. And so the Jats really stand out by a very large percentage of the, the Central Asian oh, genetic oh. pattern. Now, this fits with their origin. You see, Jat is the Sanskrit adaptation of an Indo-European root get, which in Greek sources is the Getai. There are several tribes like the Masa Getai, and, and uh, that played a big role in Iranian history because they they uh, they did a rebellion against uh, Cyrus the Great and defeated him. Mm-hmm. You know, under Queen Tomiris. There's an interesting movie about it. Um, so you see, that's a fact of history. But so the the, the Getai were in conflict with the Iranian Empire, and so many of them came to India. So there they became the Jat caste, and they mixed. But still, their genetic signature as non-Indian is still recognizable. So you see this this coming out of. Uh, uh, elsewhere, that, that happened to many groups, like uh, the Greeks coming in. And so the Greeks as a separate group disappear, but many people carry the genes of Greek ancestors. Uh, similarly, the Kushanas, the Tokarians, who get mixed with Iranians in Afghanistan, a long story. But so they end up in India, and they don't have a separate language. They are not recognizable as a group, but their genes are present in India. So in their case, they have not as far as I know, preserve their uh, communal identity, which the Jaws have. The Rajputs also, I believe, have a, a, an invader history. Um, so you see all these different communities exist in India. Uh, they get better preserved if they, if they came late enough, because you see this division into endogamous communities is fairly recent. As you also said, um, so it started in the elites. In the time of the Buddha, you already see that the Kshatriyas strive to keep their bloodline pure. Um, and so that that becomes the usual among the common people by the time of Christ or even later. So the, the, the full caste is the division of uh, the Hindu population into distinct and genetically identifiable groups. That's less than 2,000 years. So those who claim that uh, caste is intrinsic to Hinduism, which is said both by the Christian missionaries and other enemies, as well as by Orthodox Hindus. So those who claim that caste is intrinsic to Hinduism, well, yeah, I understand where that comes from, but that's not historical. Well, it depends on how far back you want to take Hinduism. Too right, uh, I guess for some Hinduism is nothing but caste, and mm-hmm. uh, they 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 refuse to <laughs> see anything beyond it. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yoga is not Hindu, but caste is Hindu. I have yeah. never understood that. 
<laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, manipulation of meanings. Yeah. I mean, I can have very briefly restate the real historical definition of Hindu, and it's not controversial. The, um, the term Hindu was first just a geographical term, but not existent in India, but in Iran. And it meant India or Indian. And so when the Muslim invaders brought it into India, it acquired an extra dimension, namely an Indian who is a pagan, who is an unbeliever, mm -hmm. contrasting with Muslim. So uh, in spite of the efforts nowadays of Mohan Bhagwat and others to say that we all have the same DNA and so on, well, we may have the same DNA, but uh, there is a clear difference between Muslims and Hindus. Whereas, not genetically. Exactly. And so, whereas under this definition, there is no difference between uh, Jains and Buddhists and tribals and and all the groups that didn't even exist yet, like the Sikhs, the Virasairas, the Ramakrishna mission and so on, who now insist on calling themselves non-Hindu, they all fall under the definition of Hindu. And so a very simple criterion is who in India goes to hell according to the Quran. Well, you see, the Buddha, no matter what a great uh, thinker and so on he was, he's in hell. And Mahavira Jina and Birsa Munda and, you know, anybody, you know, Shankara is in hell and uh, the, the Kakapiya dynasty are in hell and the Redis are in hell. And I mean, all of them. So whatever the differences. And so you have other words to indicate those differences. You know, people who follow the Vedas, you can call Vedic, but not Hindu. The word Hindu has a different meaning. And they, you know, they are Vaishnava and they are Shakta and so on. You have names for all these subsects. But you see, Hindu is a very simple concept. It means non-Muslim or by extension. You see, as Muslims became aware of the presence of Christians and Jews in India also, categories that they already knew from the Middle East, then you see a Hindu is one who is not one of these biblical so uh, that's pretty much how the Supreme Court of India also has mm -hmm. defined the word Hindu. Yes. It has basically used the negation, if I was to use right? the one. Yes, it's a not, negative definition. It's a negative definition that the Supreme Court has also defined. But then, Dr. Els, um, um, I think this should... Uh, uh, I'd ask this to you the last time, and I'm going to ask this again. And and this is for you question. Because I think it's a fair question, and people who are serious scholars should 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 be in a position to answer this question. What would prove out of India wrong? And this is this this has to be asked. To Say it again. What would what would prove the out of India hypothesis or theory wrong? I think you should be in a position to yeah. Well, answer this. Um, linguistically, uh, showing that the language is far removed from India and historically not known to come from the Indian surroundings, uh, show a connection with Proto-Indo-European. Now, uh, for Europe, this, this is impossible to show because there are no real European languages. Anymore. You see, all the languages now spoken in Europe have an out-of-European European origin, or almost, you see, if 
if the, the Russian homeland theory were true, then at least it's in the far southeastern corner of Europe that they find their origin. But so uh, there are no native European language with which Proto-Indo-European can have a connection. In the case of India, um, that's another point that, that pretty much nobody has been looking for, but that would really uh, make a great difference. You know, does such a language exist in India? So this early connection with Burushaski, with Nahali, with Dravidian, with Munda has not been found. The uh, Russian uh, scholar from St. Petersburg, um, Igor Tonayan Belyayev, has argued with a few examples, only a handful so far, that such a connection exists uh, with Tibetan, uh, which would mean that Proto-Indo-European was a neighbor of Tibet. Unless the Tibetans have also migrated all the way from Europe, but that's unlikely because Tibetan is linked with Burmese and Chinese and so on. They have not all migrated that far at least not recently. And um, so th these words are, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example of what the principle is. You have a, a, an Indo-European word, pecus, which you have literally preserved in Latin, pecus, and the cognate word v uh, is still present in, in German, meaning cattle. And uh, you have a related word in Sanskrit, pashu, now, you have, of course, many Sanskrit words that have entered Tibet. Like, for instance, a typical girl's name, Pema, is their pronunciation of Padma, Lotus. However, that's not good enough for evidence, because there you can argue, well, the Indo-Europeans came into India, developed Sanskrit, and then they were in contact with Tibet. Yeah, that's tricky. What is said here is that... Uh, the form Pashu didn't exist yet. The original form was Pekus, and it is that word that you see back in Tibetan in the form Pugs. Okay, this G is what makes the difference. It has not become Sh yet, as it does in Sanskrit. It has the original guttural or velar uh, sound G. And so this indicates that Proto Indo-European was a name of Tibetan. So that is the kind of linguistic evidence that uh, ought to be found in Europe if you want to say that there was the homeland. In fact, it has been found in the surroundings of Tibet. Or, I mean, it has been found, well, I, I'd say the hypothesis is now on the table. Uh, more examples may be found. You should also see the limitations of the discovery. Tibetan is attested since the 6th century, thereabouts AD, which is 4,000 years later than Proto-Indo-European. So how much has the Tibetan changed in the meantime? That's also a question. So how hard is this evidence? You know, that's still debatable. But at least there you have the start of the kind of proof that ling linguists might give for uh, approximately uh, the homeland in India. Um, so that's that's one possible linguistic uh, trait. Uh, as for linguistic paleontology, 
there uh, she can't argue us, <clears throat> and he's not a linguist, but he has a lot of common sense, that the word elephant uh, is present in Hittite, in Greek, and in Latin, as well as in uh, Gothic. But in Gothic, it has a changed meaning of uh, camel, which is a fairly logical thing to happen when people leave the territory where they know elephant, but, but still remember the word, they're going to reapply the word to some similar animal in that case. It's a utilitarian application. Yeah. And um, so there, rather than animals pointing to the north, you have animals pointing to India. And so this is especially the case for uh, the elephant. So you have related... A related word, ebur, which means ivory. In Latin, you have a word, lahpa, in, um, in uh, Hittite. And uh, so <clears throat> in the Indian languages, you have a word, ibha, uh, which can be related to those. Now, again, you see, this is a hypothesis, I think a very credible hypothesis, but I mean, there's every occasion for linguists to, to discuss that thread there. But so at any rate, you see, this is the type of argument that would settle the homeland question, because here you have a very clear choice. You see, either it is elephant territory or it is not. You know, does this word count? Is there really a word for elephant that you find both in Indian and in Mediterranean languages? In that case, this is a strong indication that they all came from India, because in, you know, in Europe, there are no elephants. So, you know, these are a few small indications, let's say. Uh, a stronger indication, I think, here is archaeology, but then you have to, of course, always remain aware that pottery doesn't speak, it doesn't prove a language. It's only in a certain context where you have a lot of data together that it may provide this evidence. Uh, so, you see, the question what would disprove the, the out of India scenario is, of course, the key scientific question, falsification. Um, yeah, basically, I wanted to falsify it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's a part of the normal uh, scientific process. Uh, but so I think that that type of, uh, of borderline evidence favors the out of India scenario. But uh, if I was to come back at you uh, on yeah. the Tibetan example, why why would the Tibetan example be you go below Tibet? Why can't you go above Tibet? Well, because this is... You what see what I'm, I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, of course, you see. This argument uh, could also be used for a Mongolian homeland, you know. But um, you have a number of other uh, data beside these, you know, few, uh, this handful of linguistic data. So, uh, convergence of all those elements points rather to India than to Mongolia. Yeah. Like you expect a large population, large enough to do a, a sensational emigration. Now, in Mongolia, you don't have that population. Whereas the Harappan area was the demographic heavyweight of the ancient world. But uh, Iran does have that uh, case, right? If, <laughs> if I was to use your Tibetan case, then Iran mm -hmm. also becomes a viable case, right? 
Yeah, a bit less than India because it's a little bit more removed from Tibet, but yeah, it's close enough. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah, it is. So, Dr. Rai, if I ask you, genetically, what will the likelihood of OIT or come? Genetically, it will be less. Because the data will sit down. So, the OIT case is always strong. But, the proportion of genetic components in the Europeans is very weak. So, there is a strong existence of the South Asian ancestries, the West Eurasian population is very weak. So, genetically, this case is very weak. But over the time, it will be strong. Just as the data set, it will be weak. तो अगर मतलब to simplify it आप ये कह रहे हैं कि अगर हमें step ancestry की percentage ज़्यादा मिले या हमारे इंडिया के archaeological digs में या बाहर के archaeological digs में हमें ऐसा एक genetic sample मिले जो और ज़्यादा strong ancestry दिखा रहा है उस उस दिशा से यहाँ पे then it would make a case मगर don't you think ये सारा का सारा दारोदार असल में तो ये लोग ने वो जो रिग्वेदा की 1500 की एक date ये लोग obsessed with that date है नहीं वो date किसने बोला वो date है बहुत सारे scholars debate करते हैं कि वो date भी थोड़ी बीसी आपको मैं मजे की बात बताता हूँ बोरी भंडारकर oriental research institute it does not agree with the 1500 BCE date for the रिक्वेटा ना officially लेकिन आप अगर बोरी की वेबसाइट पे जाओगे उनके dates very होते हैं somebody says 2500 somebody it's very interesting but बोरी still does not agree with OIT अब आप मुझे ये just explain this to me this is this is fascinating. A, a premier in Indian institute. There is no institute when it comes to these kinds of studies bigger mm -hmm. than Bori in India. Yeah. It is a Bori does. Uh, you can take courses in Bori, and they'll be very nonchalantly telling you, yes, Rigveda is not fifteen hundred BC. It is older than that. And then the natural question: any student who is well versed in this subject, I I get the average person may not uh, think mm -hmm. like this. But the next question: then AIT falls. But Bori doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. Bori does not comment on AIT, AMT, OIT at all. It just says Rigveda is older. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Rigveda is older, the entire edifice of this entire thing basically falls like a pack yes. of cards. Oh. It falls. They don't write things. Everything is standing on that one flagpole yeah. that the Rigveda is fifteen hundred BC. That's all. Now we've had papers. Pele debate hoti thi ki like yesterday we pointed out uh, in the Earth Fest also that the Saraswati is actually the Afghanistan River. Yeah. Uh, Witzel made that case. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, later on the RNs came in India and because they had a memory of Afghanistan, yeah. they called. Uh, so what I don't understand is like of all the places, one small river in Afghanistan and they had to take the biggest river in, mm. in India, Saraswati. But now I think we do have papers that have shown through isotope, uh, isotope, uh, and analysis. isotope analysis. Yes. Oxygen and uh, strontium. Yeah. So that date is already established. So, so Saraswati is pretty much the Indian uh, yeah, river yeah. and it's real. Yeah, mm. it's real. It's real. So it's not fictitious. Yes. Until 4,500 years before present, it was flowing. It's, 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 yeah. So did with uh, and Rigved talks about such a river. So, yes. all the evidences, yeah, Professor Sarup Mishra from BHU, he also yeah. argued that he has given a lot of linguistic uh, and archaeological evidences also. 
तो वो उनके अकॉर्डिंग एक दिन का जो डेट है 3000 बीसी एटलीस्ट मैं इसको मानता हूं पर्सनली ये जो डेटा भी हमारा जेनेटिक एविडेंस इज दैट आल्सो सम होप प्रूव्स सो ऋग्वेद की आपके भी सो आई थिंक श्रीकांत तळेगिरी एंड डॉक्टर एल्स आर आल्सो अराउंड द 3000 3500 बीसी रेंज आई मीन आई प्रीटी मच एग्री विद दैट डेट फॉर द ऋग्वेदा टू बट दिस इज फैसिनेटिंग दैट नाउ वी हैव प्रूवन प्रीटी मच द सरस्वती इज इंडियन बट ऋग्वेदा इज सिर्फ 1500 बीसी Like I, 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 I have never hidden the fact I am out mm. of India theory skeptic. I'm open to it, but I'm skeptical to it because I still am not convinced with the evidence. I, 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 I lean more towards the Iranian Armenian homeland, and I, I genuinely believe that the Rig Veda is Indian. Like the, mm. there was an influx, and it is very much a natural process with which yes. they formulated the Rig Veda. And I personally don't understand why are people so sensitive that Proto-Indo-European did not originate in India, mm. as if. They, you know, it is as if they lost some major food item in there. Like you, I mean, paneer came 400 years ago in India. The potatoes are not Indian. Indians are still consuming it, right? As if the Proto-Indo-European is not Indian, their entire language life falls or something. I don't understand. But you see, that that obsession does not exist. What exists is the reverse. You see, it's the Aryan invasion people who make so much of it. It is they who argue, oh yeah, Hindus aren't really Indian. and it is they like the cardinal karge in parliament who shout oh you are in zone belong in india you know it is they who made an issue of it and then yes hindu nationalists have reacted so when they heard that scholars were saying oh no india is a homeland then they jumped on the bandwagon they were enthusiastic about it. and the fascinating bit even if you read the rigveda are there verses in the rigveda that say smash the dasas and the dasus yes there are verses But guess what is there in the Rigveda too? And straight in the sixth mandala, it's done. Smash the Aryas. <laughs> so I mean, uh, what kind of Aryas are uh, these who want to smash their own people? So yeah. I mean, and, and before somebody judges, I can share the verse. By the way, not once, two or two or three times in the sixth mandala itself, mm-hmm. it starts right. In fact, there are verses like the Aryas and the Dasas mm-hmm. should be smashed. Stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So if so, this is clearly a very settled uh, society. and these people uh, are just normal people having interlacing yes. bickerings yes. with each other mm-hmm. and uh, their bickerings are clearly and this is where my respect for shrikant talagiri stands because he got it spot on this is a puru bharata book mm-hmm. it is clearly from a puru bharata perspective mm-hmm. and it is the puru bharatas uh, and their interactions with other tribes pretty much and that, that's what it's showing but before uh, before we wrap this up uh, first to you dr ray Are you optimistic that this debate will be settled? Or your paper, sir? You and Ganeshwar, Doctor Ganeshwar, Chaube, when you are bringing your paper? Look, the data and publications are now. In that, there is a gap in the general public. It will not reach there until there. Until there, our books will not be contained. Until then, the Aryan religion theory and uh, OTT to prove or disprove will be very difficult. तो अभी जो बच्चे पढ़ रहे हैं उनके फर्स्ट क्यूरिकुल में वही है आर्यन थियरी तो जब भी बड़े होंगे तो फिर फिर कंफ्यूज होंगे वो भले उसको एक्सेप्ट करेंगे कि हाँ ठीक है नहीं हुई है बट दे विल बी इन कंफ्यूजन स्टेट सरस्वती की जो है सरस्वती रिवर पे कम साइंटिफिक पब्लिकेशन बेस्ट पब्लिकेशन हुए हैं तीन चार पब्लिकेशन है बट उसकी इन्फॉर्मेशन अभी भी बहुत लोगों के पास नहीं है I, a few times I've seen used as an argument a paper from less than ten years ago, where the distribution of um, 
R1A1 is used to show a migration from India, where they claim that it's much more diverse in India, which indicates the place of origin. And it has spread not only to Europe, but also to, to Uva, to Western Mongolia, um, where there is no connection. In fact, I've even heard David Anthony say that, that there is no migration discernible from Europe to Mongolia, whereas there is a migration both between Europe and India and between Mongolia and India. Uh, so that also helps make the case that India is a land of origin. But so what is this R1A1 uh, evidence worth? So, uh, yeah, uh, in most other cases, we are comparing our data with the present data in European context. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have much data set from Mongolia. Of course. But in Mongolia also, we have found R1A1 uh, lineage, but mm -hmm. they are very less frequency. Mm -hmm. And we have very strong connections from India, mostly in uh, Himachal, Manjal and Spiti region. The populations, they carry R1A1 history. In the tough terrain of Spiti, that is very close geographical to the Tibet and Mongolia. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, uh, if you are like making a case of migrations or like a homeland of Indo-European languages to Tibet, that can be proven genetically. Because in present day high altitude, uh, Himachali populations in, uh, in Spiti and Tibet, they also carry, they also connect genetically. And that ancestry is very, very deeply rooted. And we often get in our, uh, in Harappan uh, samples also, we get that ancestry in very little amount. But we always ignore it because that not exist, uh, like that linguistically, uh, like uh, culturally, uh, that we, we miss some kind of connect. So we have to omit that every time that deep-rooted SHT that is coming mm -hmm. around 2-3%. But now as you are making a case of uh, Tibet as a homeland of, probably homeland of European languages, so we'll, we'll take out that data, we'll dig out and then we try to establish mm -hmm. if it is possible. So, mm -hmm. so what, the fascinating case over here with genetics is, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, it is based on a a priori sampling assumption. You have to... Which, which is why I keep requesting geneticists to use Iran as the homeland too and make... Because the, the largest smattering, if there is, of a genetic component. Because I was not aware the the case he has put forward. Yeah, about the Tibetan. Because we have never uh, came across any publications or any uh, such kind of hypothesis which is available inter on internet or in mm. uh, books. But definitely we'll, uh, we'll try to revisit our data and uh, see if it makes any sense. Mm. So, so mm -hmm. and this is one of the reasons, one of my ultimate dreams, in fact, to on a very... And in the... Sorry to show you. No, please. If you see the uh, present scenario of uh, Imanchali and Adagi populations, they will give you a lot of confusion. But if you are working on ancient samples, which is going back to 3,000, 4,000 years ago, that will give you a clear picture. And uh, same like in Northeast... Uh, we are working in uh, Nagaland, Mizoram, all these uh, mm -hmm. states. In the old samples, we are finding Tibetan ancestry more compared to the modern day populations. As soon as the uh, this populations they got established and they started uh, making their number more, they somehow they started losing that Tibetan ancestry. Mm -hmm. I don't know the reason why this Tibetan and uh, Nepali ancestry is diluting. 
in the northeastern populations. But if you go back to Holocene, Holocene samples, Mesolithic hunter gatherer populations of northeast, you will have more dominance of people than ancestors. Could, uh, could could be the case of those particular groups were isolated? Maybe, the... yeah. Some, uh, maybe the population replacement or population, some branches of that group extinctions because of epidemic. Could be. Could be any case. Could be. Uh, in, this is why I wanted to do this discussion uh, on a freewheeling basis. Is, uh, in fact, one of my dreams was, unfortunately, COVID hit and it would never happen was that Linguists work in isolation. Mm -hmm. Geneticists work in isolation. Rigvedic scholars work in isolation. They never speak with each other. Yeah, true. This subject, and no matter which homeland eventually is the most likely one, because it doesn't matter, because India and Indians are native to India, and mm -hmm. this culture is native to India. Uh, so outside of the political bickering, we, should, we the average Indian doesn't care. Mm -hmm. The politicians can do what they want to do. Yeah, another thing is that we are funded. Yeah, so we have limited fund to do this kind of study. And this needs this, a lot of money. This needs not a lot of money. It, it requires peanut. So, like, Indian government is, uh, uh, yeah, it is helpful to provide some funds, but that is not up to the mark. We really need some good amount of money to sequence more and more number of samples. So, so in fact, I will, I will request to this podcast, you know, I know a lot of serious people, serious people who are funders also watch this so if you but this r one paper is ready and we wanted to make it a very strong case yeah. and that we are really struggling funding situations this last two three years we want to sequence not many but up to 100 individuals white chromosomal dna mm. and then for that also we are like english we, we are trying to manage funds so so you can imagine dr mm -hmm. else the struggles we face like i wanted to design this conference where i wanted to call you dr rai dr chaube dr manjul Mm -hmm. uh, and many others like to come together and maybe a couple of linguists more and even Rigvedic scholars who understand the Rigveda like a back of the hand, Dr. Shikantaragiri. And I wanted to, you know, put them all in a room together mm -hmm. in a conference for like five to seven days where nobody from the public comes and everybody gives their case to the other person and the other person blows holes into their case. Yeah. And then a larger case comes out. Like even in this small conversation, when he mentioned the Tibetan thing, you could relate to it, right? Now imagine if somebody is sitting together for five days and the biggest problem with this subject is there is no communication. There is only work in isolation and without taking names, a lot of quackery goes on. Even, mm -hmm. even in the OIT side, even in the Hindu side, so much quackery goes yeah, out and it, it is embarrassing the level of quackery yeah. that is there. And then in that quackery, serious scholars like him get painted because it's so easy for the AIT side to say, oh, Conrad Els is like the Rig Veda is 20,000 years old. Mm. Conrad Els has never said the Rig Veda yeah. is 20,000 years old. Conrad Els keeps saying it is 3,000 to 3,500 years BCE. That's all Conrad Els mm. says. But they, it is so easy to dismiss yeah. these people, and yeah. it's a tragedy. Which is why I, you know, I try whenever I get an opportunity, I try to do these things yeah. until we don't have the the linguists and the geneticists and the archaeologists and the Rigveda people in one room together ideating. The lucky thing with me was I was obsessed with this subject, so I would read this all the time. Just as as a child, I just got obsessed with it. And, in fact, even Dr. Els once told me when he was in my house, he's like, I'm glad at least somebody's obsessed with it. You know, we are getting old. You, young man, you take this forward. <laughs> and Dr. Els was glad that somebody's obsessed with it. He's reading about this. And I just happened to read a bit of you, a bit of him, a bit, a bit of Talagiri. 
And I was like, okay, these people are not talking to each other. That, that was literally my confusion that they seem to be working in isolation. Even all of you are working in isolation. And that's why I wanted to do this. But uh, once again, thank you very much, Dr. Rai and Dr. Els. Before well, we yeah. there's still one thing I need to say here. Please do. Uh, you see, of course, I'm all for this uh, interdisciplinary conference. But you see, there's, there's a group you seem to be forgetting. Uh, and, and they are very crucial in this case. Uh, it is the Western Indo-Europeanist establishment. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, like it or not, it is they who have the authority to decide which is a serious theory, let alone the truth, but at any rate, which theories are to be ridiculed and excluded. And so it's about time to get them on board, or at least to get them to talk with you. 100%. It, it briefly started around the year 2000, many thanks to the efforts of the American scholar Edwin Bryant, who is a, a Hare Krishna. He's also a Hindu, but he's also very much an American. And um, so that lasted for only a few years. And then uh, from people like Steve Farmer, like uh, Stephanie Jamieson, came this, uh, this taboo, you know, you, you should boycott them. They are flat earthers. They are not worth talking to. That's us. So um, you see, the last 20 years, there hasn't been much of uh, interaction anymore. Stephanie Jamieson has translated the Rigveda. Yes, I know. She's a very prominent scholar. Yeah. She's far more careful with these racial issues in her translation than the 19th century people were. Mm -hmm. Though she still hasn't noticed that these uh, Dasas were the Iranians. But, but uh, can I say something over here? Because yes. I have read Griffith, Wilson, Stephanie yes. Jameson, yes. all three. And in fact, even in my Patreon sessions, I, I mm -hmm. use all three translations. Um, to be very honest, Griffith had his own blind spots. Wilson mm. had his own blind yeah, spots. Yeah, yeah. But Jameson has a Kurgan blind spot in her translation. Has a Kurgan, Kurgan, yes. Kurgan blind spot. Mm -hmm. A lot of her words and a lot of her translations, if you look at Sina's commentary also, yes. and that's what we do every time, you can clearly see Jameson adding the horse where there is none mm -hmm. uh, in, on many occasions. In fact, uh, it was our group that discusses yes. it on Patreon, on my Patreon. Who reached out to Srikansar and then Srikansar wrote that whole blog on Stephanie Jameson's yes. translation. Yeah, but so here I, I do not want to add to any possible and reasonable criticism of uh, Stephanie Jamieson. You know, I merely want to focus on the fact that, you see, she was one of the yeah. crucial people in, in outlawing uh, discussion with the out of India theorists. So, you know, we should, I, I can name a number of people. Maybe it's not diplomatic if I name them now. Yeah. But I know a number of people in Europe, at any rate, there must be similar ones in America, uh, who are very reasonable, who are open-minded enough to, uh, to start this debate again. So, you know, if, if you want to bring people together, certainly bring them also here. In fact, I, I would even reach out to... You know, at least one is my dear friend, uh, who may not be in academia, but I think he's a very open-minded guy, uh, Razib Khan. I, Razib is very well known. Razib yeah. and I are very good friends. And in fact, I would, you know, get Razib on board in a discussion like this. He, he What he does is he narrates what the population geneticists say. And he himself is a 
population geneticist, uh, Dr. Rai knows Rasi mm-hmm. too. So I would get Rasi because he, yeah. you know, he is on a basher. He says there is an invasion. So yeah, uh, yeah he, he doesn't hide behind words. Yeah. That's why I admire Rasi so mm-hmm. much that he's like, I'm not going to cherry pick my words. You know, he, he is very straight and he doesn't, and he doesn't understand Indian politics. So I had to explain to him, Rasid, this is why it's so, you know, fiery in India. He's like, well, that's not my problem. I'm not Indian. I'm just telling you what it is. <laughs> he comes from that point of view. But yes, I do agree with you. And I sincerely hope this discussion happens because this, because of certain political elements in India, this entire issue has been hijacked where it, this should be a serious academic issue and let the chips fall wherever they fall. Yeah. And we will all accept the reality because... Yeah. We are all Indians after that. And yeah. it doesn't matter who came when. Yeah. I mean, this country is for everyone. The constitution is here. It gives us rights. And, you know, we yeah. live according to the rights. But but once again, Dr. Els, thank you very much. Dr. Rai, thank you very much. I And I sincerely hope your paper comes out because everybody seems to be waiting for that paper. Yeah, so we are going to organize some conference in June, early June in Kashmir. So there we are going to reveal our six publications back to back. So that is going to be a big conference. I will invite you guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I would love to guess. I would love to come. I would love to come. So, see you in Kashmir. Yeah, <laughs> Kashmir. <mein milenge. laughs> so, we are also going to talk about uh, population history of Kashmiris. Oh, wow. Yes. So we will cover that genetic history since last 5,000 years. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm looking forward to this now. I'm looking forward that to That paper is under review. Okay. So, thank you very much Thanks. once again, uh, Dr. I. Dr. Els, it's always a pleasure to talk mm-hmm. to you. I, I've learned a lot from you. Uh, not on, not only in the, this field, but also your dispassionate review of uh, Indian politics. I may not agree with everything, yeah. but what I like about you is always you have always been open to me. You've always said no. I'll talk to you uh, even if you disagree mm. with me. So thank you very much. And uh, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Uh, you can uh, follow Dr. Rai and Dr. Els on Twitter uh, in the description of the podcast. I will leave their Twitter handles. You you don't need to. Uh, check their publications beyond you you know everything is there on social media so if you follow them you'll find that and please support the charwork podcast this this podcast takes up these issues in a scholarly manner because nobody else does so if you want me to survive you have to become a member of the podcast so if you support me on youtube patreon fanmo that is how i i sustain the ship it is you members who sustain the ship so that i don't have to do any clickbait videos so please support the podcast and uh, you know like this video Leave your comment and subscribe to the channel. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, now stay take care. Bye. Bye.